Steinberg, terror-stricken, started to flee the moment the shooting began, but he was pursued by the man with the shotgun and fell mortally wounded just a few feet from the car used by the killers. As Steinberg, with several bullet wounds in his body, lay in the middle of the road, one of the mobsters called out from the car, Give it to him again. At this command, the man with the weapon walked to Steinberg's prostrate form, aimed his gun with deliberate care at the wounded man, and calmly pulled the trigger. Steinberg died before he could be rushed to the state hospital. With their deadly mission completed, the killers sped through the block where they ambushed Steinberg and Weiss and headed to Monsey Avenue, turning north on that thoroughfare. They were lost to view long before police reached the scene. The legends of America's mobs are woven into the fabric of society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the tales of these criminal organizations. Their stories of power, wealth, respect, family, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mobs may be over, organized crime continues to thrive, and the stories remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Gangland History Podcast, hosted by mob historian Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind organized crime in America. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Gangland History Podcast, formerly the members-only podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, mob enthusiast and historian. Uh, and in today's episode, I'm really excited. It's the first episode where I'm using the Gangland History Podcast branding. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about a really infamous subject, Joseph Barbara, Joe the Barber, uh, the man who had the bad luck of hosting the famous 1957 Appalachian Conference that, uh, as we now know, was put together by the likes of Vito Genovese, Carlo Gambino, Stefano Magadino, so on and so forth. Barbara is most often overlooked as a legitimate gangster in his own right based on how his career ended, but I can promise you that in his time before the Appalachian fiasco, he was a very, very formidable Cosa Nostra member and leader in his own right within the uh, area of northeastern Pennsylvania, southern New York. He was kind of right on that borderline, uh, and he was the predecessor for some pretty well-known, well-known gangsters, and we're going to cover that in this episode. Before we get started, again, I'd like to remind you uh, that I'm I'm taking a different approach, right? I'm going to be freewheeling this episode a little bit more than I normally do. I'm normally pretty scripted, uh, and in this episode, if you see me looking off to the side, right? It's because I'm looking at my notes, reading my notes, uh, and I'm not using a teleprompter. So for me, this is a bit of a bit of a new experience and a bit of a new experiment. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of detail in this episode, just like any of my other episodes. So quite honestly, sometimes you may see me just straight up reading in reading from the the teleprompter. But to speed up the editing process, my goal is to freelance and freewheel this uh, a little bit more uh, and not be as robotic in my delivery, which I talked about. Uh, perhaps that wasn't the compliment that I that I thought it was in the comments. 
anyhow, um, as you know, uh, you know, I've put some business behind the uh, the Gangland History podcast, and I still do have to get used to calling it the Gangland History podcast. Uh, you will see the change in the name and the branding on my YouTube channel. Going to be standing up a Patreon channel with exclusive member benefits very soon. If you're listening to the audio version, again, no need to resubscribe. You're just going to see the change in the name and the branding. All the old episodes will still be there. Just past 9,000 subscribers on YouTube. Again, no need, no reason to resubscribe. Uh, but for those people that have listened to my to my content for a long time, very, very passionate. And I'm really, really thankful uh, for the opportunity. Again, I realize I'm not a very large channel. There are much bigger channels. Uh, but I appreciate everybody that does take the time to follow me. I realize that I don't put out videos as often. And I'm doing all of this to try to change that. Uh, and I'm putting a little bit more formality behind it from a business standpoint to try to actually grow this into something that is more than just my side hustle. So if you're a new listener, welcome. And please hit that subscribe button, turn on the bell to get notifications. If you're an existing listener, please do me a favor, share the show. Uh, you know, it's certainly open to uh, guest suggestions, topic suggestions. Like I said, we're going to be moving a lot faster. Uh, if you're an audio listener, specifically if you listen on Apple Podcasts, that platform takes in reviews. So if you've got feedback, good, bad, or ugly, feel free to head on over there and and tell me what you think. Uh, I'm you know I'm willing to take good feedback, bad feedback, whatever the case may be. Uh, but all of that stuff, you know, all the ratings and reviews helps the algorithm, which helps the show grow. Uh, but Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Uh, this episode, as I said, is going to be on the man, the myth, the legend behind the Appalachian Conference, uh, the fiasco that was the Appalachian Conference, Joseph, Joe the Barber, Barbara. The man who came to be known as Joe the Barber uh, or Joe Barber, uh, Joseph Mario Barbara, was born Giuseppe Maria Barbara on August 9th, 1905 in the infamous town of Castellamare del Golfo, Sicily. His father uh, was also named Joseph Barbara, and his mother was a woman named Angela Galante. Uh, Joseph uh, Joe Barbara had one brother, Charles Barbara, who later on in life would follow him into the life now, Castellamare del Golfo, uh, which is located in the province of Trapani, is situated in the northwest coast of the island of Sicily, featuring an absolutely stunning view overlooking the Mediterranean. And if you look at the pictures, it is stunning. The name of the town can be translated as Sea Fortress on the Gulf, stemming from the, the obvious medieval fortress that exists just on the harbor. This small Sicilian town of roughly 15 to 20,000 people is also noted for another reason. It's the birthplace of some of the most prominent Sicilian-American mafia figures of the 20th century, including the likes of Salvatore Maranzano, Stefano Magadino, Vito Bonaventre, John Tartamella, Carmine Galanti, and probably most famous, Joe Bonanno. Now, 
For those history buffs out there, a significant event was happening in the 1910 to 1920 time frame, right? World War I. And of course, Italy was uh, a combatant in that war. But in the aftermath of the war, a journalist uh, named Benito Mussolini rose to power and essentially became the dictator of Italy. And again, that's really oversimplifying it, but uh, that's not what we need to get into here. With Mussolini's rise to power, he was able to brush aside and persecute many enemies. And one of those key forces that he pushed against was indeed the Sicilian Mafia. They definitely uh, were a direct challenge to his power. In his efforts to gain control of southern Italy, and most especially Sicily, he appointed a brutal man named Cesare More as a prefect of the city of Palermo. This guy was a brutal guy, and maybe we'll do an episode on him uh, at some point. And More's, uh, you know, charge uh, was to eradicate the Sicilian mafia at any cost. To avoid the persecution of More, many mafioso fled from Sicily to America to set up shop and start fresh. However, most brought with them their old world traditions uh, and kept their clannish nature as a means of both protection and power. Uh, and, and not only that, it was very common for Italians migrating in the 20th century to come to, in most cases, the big cities, but in many cases, uh, smaller cities and being unfamiliar you know, with the, the language being spoken here in the United States and facing uh, widespread, widespread racism and discrimination, uh, similar to, uh, quite honestly, uh, you know, African-Americans had been the predominant group and, you know, Irish as well, who had been discriminated against. And Italians after, you know, the 1860s and 1870s, as Italian immigration ramped up, they became the new ethnic minority who was in turn discriminated against. It was kind of their turn. And in the early 20th century, many residents from the town of Castellamare del Golfo immigrated to New York City and other areas around the country. And the Castellamarese men represented the major opposition to fellow Sicilian Joe Masseria in New York City in the late 1920s and early 30s, leading to, of course, as we know, the Castellamarese War, which was fought for control of the underworld, not just in New York City, but nationally between Joe Masseria's group and the Maranzano clan of Castella Maresi del Golfo. Now, young Joseph Barbara and family would live in Sicily until the age of 16, right? So he spent his formative years in Sicily in Castella Mare del Golfo, most likely being completely ingrained in the culture of the mafia that existed there, especially at that time. Uh, but when he was 16, his family would immigrate to the United States, arriving in New York City on May 28, 1921. Six years later, in 1927, he would become a naturalized citizen at the age of 22. And it's at this point when his family would, uh, and I, I don't know exactly when they emigrated to the town of Endicott, New York, but at some point between the point in time when he arrives in New York City in 1921 and 1927, he he emigrates, and I would think it would probably tend towards the earlier time frame. Now, from 
1922 until 1928, Barbara would find gainful employment at the Endicott Johnson Shoe Factory in Endicott, New York. Uh, now, again, that's why I know, you know, as soon as he gets to New York, he probably goes right away to Endicott. And he would work there along with his good friend and another uh, person who would become involved in the mafia, Emmanuel Zakari. And like I said, Barbara would become a citizen of the United States on May 2nd, 1927. A notation in his FBI file would suggest that he was sent home for being tardy to work at the Endicott Johnson Shoe Factory, uh, where he worked for about six years. And he he was tardy for work, sent home, and he just never returned. <laughs> he, he said, oh, peace out, done with this job. Now, it's also around this time, and again, he may have been ingrained in it already, uh, but it's also around this time when Barbara would really find his true calling in life. And it's at this time when young Mr. Barbara would really first show up as running afoul of the law when his name would be present. It would show up in the Binghamton Press on October 12th, 1927. The article would detail a fairly vicious assault by a 22-year-old Joseph Barbara on a man named Cecil Bates, who was also 22, who had accused Barbara of beating him on Clark Street in Endicott, New York. In what would become a, a long-standing trend, Barbara would be acquitted of the third-degree assault by a jury just 10 days after claiming actual self-defense uh, when the jury didn't believe Bates. Now, no doubt in my mind that you know the, the local mafia, Don, probably had a, a hand in, in rigging this in Barbara's favor. Now, during the testimony, Bates would allege that Barbara thrusted a knife into his back cutting through his vest and shirt, but not cutting flesh, with Barbara also threatening to stab and shoot Bates. But even with that testimony, uh, Barbara was able to skate free. Again, this is not abnormal at that time. It was pretty easy to buy off politicians and to get people off of cases, especially with the lack of witnesses being willing to testify, the lack of physical physical evidence you know camera footage anything that did not exist back then it, back then it was a lot easier to commit crimes now fast forward a few years uh, according to records i was able to locate from may 18th 1933 in which barbara was applying for a marriage license by this time barbara was 27 years old he would reside for a time in old forge pennsylvania at a home on 104 South Main Street. He'd later move, he'd move around a couple of times, but he'd later move to another location on that street, sometimes reported as either 717 or 1717 South Main Street around the early 1930s. For those that kind of like to go in and, and look at that sort of thing on Google Maps, I always find it very fun and interesting to go look at an old address where you know something or someone infamous lived or something happened and to see what it looks like today so feel free now the following month on june 24th 1933 he would marry a young woman six years his junior named josephine vivona who was of endicott new york and the couple would go on to have four children two sons joseph jr who we'll talk about later peter and two daughters angeline who actually died at the age of two, unfortunately, and another daughter named Angela. 
Now, in his marriage application the previous month in 1933, young Joseph Barbara would list his occupation as a salesman. However, based on notes I found about his early years, it seems that after arriving in the northeastern Pennsylvania area in the 1920s, Barbara at some point developed key relationships with several figures in the underworld, including a man named uh, Santo Volpe, as well as other men named Charles Buffalino, Salvatore and Joseph Falcone, and Angelo Polizzi. So why are those names important, you might ask? Well, let me explain. Santo Volpe was in fact from around 1908 until the early 1930s considered to be the Mafia Don of Pittston, Pennsylvania, of the Pittston mob, what the forerunner of which was eventually to become the Buffalino crime family. At some point, we'll, we'll do a story on Santo Volpe. He was a very, very powerful guy during his time and even after his time as boss. And he was involved in some very serious stuff, including the murder of the sitting boss of Pittsburgh in the early 1930s, a man named John Bizzano. We'll tell that story again in a future episode. Pittsburgh was a wild place uh, at this point in time, just like everywhere else. Now, according to FBI sources, Santo Volpe was the self-titled King of the Night, recognized leader of the Sicilians, and had as lieutenants Joseph Barbara and Angelo Polizzi, who were in the bootlegging racket, having really strong connections with the National Combine, and Volpe even had connections to Charles Lucky Luciano himself. Now, how does Barbara become involved with Volpe, you might ask? And I would say probably, you know, there's not a lot of documentation, but probably in the traditional way. He comes to this country, he emigrates to the area, and the local mafia leaders see him in and around the neighborhood as a, as a young, strapping, up-and-coming uh, young Italian guy, and he catches the eye of, of somebody within the family, maybe even the local Don himself, Volpe, and they slowly began to put him to work. Of course, at that time, everybody was getting involved in bootlegging, prohibition, and everybody was looking to swell the ranks of their operation and recruit capable people. Now, I did come across the following note from later in Barbara's life in 1958 that would lay out some of Barbara's early years, according to a man named Louis Pagnotti Sr., who knew Barbara and had once loaned him money to start a business, though in this note, he was attempting actually to dispel a rumor though it may have actually served to corroborate the Volpe-Barbara connection. Quote, He also said that at no time had Barbara ever been his chauffeur and that a rumor had apparently arisen that Barbara had served in this capacity for Pagnotti years ago. Pagnotti pointed out that the rumor was to the effect that Barbara had been a chauffeur for a coal operator in the old forge area years ago, and he pointed out that years ago he had not been the only coal operator in that area, and Barbara probably had served as a chauffeur for some other individual. Pagnotti denied knowledge as just to who Barbara's employer might have been. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but I really have to question that because how many coal operators 
have a chauffeur, right? Uh, and as you'll see later, that man, though Pagnotti refused to name him, was in fact Santo Volpe, who perhaps uncoincidentally shows up in the report slightly below this note. And if you know anything about the Pittston area and, of course, Italian immigration to the area, well, you know, at that point in time, coal was a was a huge industry and quite honestly, the business people in the area were looking for cheap labor to go in and, and do the hard work that was working in a coal mine. And of course, the Dons, uh, as they do with most businesses, they just rose to the top. Now, additionally, another report would also support Barbara's role as uh, Volpe's chauffeur, as well as his bodyguard in the early 1920s. Again, this is... Um, very common for somebody who rises to a leadership position. You know, they they a lot of times start and get the role of chauffeur and bodyguard to the boss where they learn the trade. It's a lot of times somebody with potential is identified and they get that slot right next to the boss. It's happened time and time again. Uh, and another note would actually refer to Barbara as just one of Volpe's boys, right? So, I think that there was probably something that Volpe recognized was special with respect to to Barbara and his leadership abilities for the future. But again, I just have to ask, uh, what sort of coal operator needs a chauffeur and a bodyguard? (laughs) Not a coal operator. He's a mop don. Now, the second man I mentioned uh, in the note before was a guy named Charles Buffalino. Now, you might recognize that name because Charles Buffalino was actually the uncle of future Buffalino family boss, Russell Buffalino. And, you know, he was a member of the Pittston mob who would eventually rise to the position of Capo himself. The next pair of associated uh, people in the reports with Barbara were brothers Salvatore and Joseph Falcone, who would grow to become very powerful members, actually, of the Magadino family, who ran the rackets of Utica, New York. And again, this is these this is a pair of guys, and I would love to get out of the big cities and focus, in some cases, uh, on the small towns where you had really important guys who were parts of families operating on a, in a satellite capacity, uh, as was the case with Salvatore and Joseph Falcone, who controlled all the rackets in Utica, New York. And the Falcone brothers would later be among those who were caught attending the infamous 1957 Appalachian Conference at Barbara's home. And as for Angelo Polizzi, he would become really a long-time highly respected member of the mafia in Detroit. And again, he's somebody else I want to dig into and allegedly a member of the Purple Gang. Although, again, don't quote me on that. You know, it's something I've got to dig into, but this is something that I saw in FBI reports. His alias was also allegedly the, the very badass King of the Night, which now that I've heard it twice, being, you know, Volpe referring to himself as a King of the Night, I kind of get the sense that those in the Pittston area who were part of this thing referred to themselves as the Kings of the Night or the King of the Night. Uh, I kind of get the the feeling that that was just the inside way that they referred to themselves. Now, throughout Polizzi's career, he'd tally a very long arrest record with charges of armed robbery, carrying a concealed weapon, murder, as well as counterfeiting. 
Palizzi would have longtime connections to Barbara. They would be very, very close friends all the way up until Palizzi's death in the 50s, as well as, uh, you know, he Palizzi himself would have key partnerships uh, with guys like Joe Cirilli and Bill Toko out of Detroit. In fact, you know, just to show the relationship between Palizzi and Barbara, uh, Palizzi was the witness at Joe Barbara's wedding, and you can actually see his name on the marriage certificate. So that would tend to indicate just how close Angelo Polizzi and Joe Barbara were. And all of these men would be involved and implicated in homicides involving our subject, Joe Barbara, and all would go on to or had already, you know, had to some extent a very successful career in the Cosa Nostra. According to many reports that would come out after the Appalachian fiasco, Joe Barbara appears to have been more than just the man whose home was opened up for this national mob conference, right? Uh, he would develop uh, from just a, a, a young ad- Italian kid running the running the streets and a, and a chauffeur and bodyguard to the boss uh, into a leader in his own right over the next you know 20 or 30 30 years of his mob existence in fact he was quite the force in the underworld in the northeastern pennsylvania and what i would just call the southern new york area in his own right kind of settling right on the border of pennsylvania and new york and you're going to see that he would go back and forth between you know those residences ultimately you know ending his career in new york And, uh, you know, again, because of the fiasco that was the Appalachian Conference, his career largely gets overshadowed. It really does. Uh, And again, not that he was a good person, right? But I I think it's worth calling attention to his his career because most people don't know that this guy was was really a serious guy and a a gangster's gangster for sure. Uh, Joseph Joe the Barber or Joe Barber Barbara FBI number 474250 would allegedly be involved in many brutal homicides over the years and he would ultimately become a very feared and respected member of Cosa Nostra pretty much all the way up until the Appalachian issue. A note later in his life would say the following about him, quote, All his life, he has been an associate of known gangsters and racketeers and has a reputation of being a gunman, murderer, bootlegger, and molester, end quote. Uh, So that's that's quite the auspicious reputation, and we're about to dive into it headfirst. And I'm not sure where the molester came from. I didn't see a case of him molesting anybody that came up, so I'm really not sure where where that part came from, uh, unless it was something unreported or, or maybe it was just that he harassed people. I'm not really sure. Uh, But in the early 1930s, Barbara at the time was living at 406 Fairview Avenue in Elmira, New York, and supposedly working days as a beer salesman and evenings as the manager of Vivona Brothers Restaurant in Endicott, New York. However, it's at this time where Barbara pretty much would allegedly begin taking part in gangland hits, going full force into his life as a mafioso. It's pretty clear that, to me, those occupations were fronts for what he was really doing behind the scenes in his work for Santo Volpe. The first documented instance in which I was able to tie Barbara's name to a murder 
was the murder of a man named Charles Calamara, a local mine worker who'd only been back in town for a few days after returning from Italy after a two-year hiatus away from the United States. Calamara was fatally shot on January 4th, 1931 in Pittston, Pennsylvania. Now, Calamara, after being wounded eight times by two shooters, provided actually a deathbed confession naming his two assailants as brothers, Tony Marilla and Carmel Merletti of Pittston. A report in the Scranton Republican on January 7, 1931, would carry front-page pictures of the men being detained for questioning in the murder. And this is where I first got a glimpse of a 26-year-old Joseph Barbara. And frankly, I don't think I've actually seen this particular image of Barbara shared anywhere before, so I found it extra interesting due to that fact. The article itself read as follows. Quote, Held by troopers in Pittston murder, accused killer is questioned by state police. Tony Marilla, his two brothers, a cousin, and Old Forge man are held at Wyoming Barracks as authorities seek solution in Calamara murder. Pittston, January 6th. State and city police in the Wyoming Barracks tonight were questioning Tony Marilla, the accused slayer of Charles Calamara, who was fatally wounded on East Railroad Street, this city, on Sunday night. Carmelo and Joseph Marilla, brothers of the accused man Carmel Merletti, a cousin, and Joseph Barbara of Main Street Old Forge also are being held at the troopers' headquarters. Throughout the day, a detail of state troopers in charge of Sergeant Joseph Miller, Chief of Police Luke Keating, and County Detective John Dempsey were making a checkup on statements of witnesses given to the authorities on the night of the shooting. They are also checking on statements made last night by Tony Marilla when he gave himself up at police headquarters. The police revisited the scene of the crime in the Marilla home. The scene and the home are on a direct line with where the 38 caliber revolver and five empty shells was found. At the barracks tonight, State Police Captain William A. Clark announced that Marilla maintained that he was on his way to Pittston from Old Forge at the time the shooting occurred. Marilla's brother, when questioned, stated that Tony came home, took off his good clothes, and put on his old suit and overcoat and went to town. The good clothes that are mentioned and the description of the Marilla tally with the description of the man seen running away from the scene, it was reported. The description of the other man is said to tally with that of Carmel Merletti, a cousin of Tony. This afternoon, undertaker Charles Graziano received a cablegram from the wife of the dead man a, at Montedoro, Italy, in response to cable sent to her yesterday. The cablegram read, I want to know if it is true my husband is dead. Please wire at once. If so, do not bury body until further notice, Mrs. Charles Calamara. Mr. Graziano immediately replied by cable, informing her that the first cablegram was correct. End quote. Now, an FBI report from 1958 describing the incident, albeit with incorrect names, would go further on the motive for the assassination of Calamara. Quote, Joseph Barbara, the host, was arrested in 1931 by the Pennsylvania State Police, Wyoming, Pennsylvania, charged with suspicion of murder. Calamaro Calogero of Montedoro, Sicily, arrived in Pittston, Pennsylvania on December 31, 1930. 
On January 4th, 1931, at about 8 p.m., Calogero was walking along Railroad Street, Pittston, when he was overtaken by two men, one of whom fired six shots at him. The victim in his dying declaration accused one, Tony Morreale, of shooting him because of difficulties between the victim in Santo Volpe and Charles Buffalino. It was established that Barbara was a frequent visitor at the home of Carmel Morreale, a brother of Tony. Upon his apprehension, Tony Morreale claimed that at the time of the murder, he was working at Old Forge at a still owned by Barbara. Barbara was arrested on suspicion of being that second man. However, he was discharged when witnesses could not identify him. End quote. Now, ultimately, Barbara and the others would be released and he would escape any any charges. Uh, however, a note in an FBI field document citing the incident 27 years after the fact would corroborate Barbara's involvement in the Charles Calamara homicide, noting the issue between Calamara and Pittston mob boss Santo Volpe, as well as Volpe's lieutenant, Charles Buffalino. This would not be the last time Barbara would have uh, a murder brushed, you know, pretty much under the rug from a law enforcement perspective, and it would not be the last time that his name would come up in respect to a murder. That same 1958 report would detail many other chilling incidents related to Joe the Barber's handiwork. Quote, Later in 1931, Barbara was arrested by New York City police and charged with violation of Section 1897 of the penal law, Gun. Barbara had been stopped at a roadblock in Brooklyn during a hunt for Vincent Call, a New York gangster who was later murdered. When Barbara was searched, a pistol was found in his possession. In court, he produced a permit signed by a judge in Broome County, New York. He was then discharged on 831 or 8-1. 31. End quote. I was able to cross-reference an article out of the Brooklyn Daily Times confirming this incident, and interestingly enough, Barbara would be found with some future mafia, what I'll just call superstars, real heavyweights, who, you know, if you're an aficionado of this genre, you're going to recognize these names. Additionally, there is also a connection, intentional or not, with the murder the previous month of one Joe the Boss Masseria. Reports like these are really why I love looking back at old newspapers. You just never know what you're going to find and what you're going to come across, and I like bringing them into the light, these long-forgotten sorts of relics. I enjoy bringing them into the light, and I enjoy reading them myself. The article would go on to say the following, quote, Roaming police patrol seizes group of gunmen. Four picked up in car in Flatbush near where man was slain. On way to Coney Island. Still intent on the armed war against gangsters, the bandit motor patrol ranged through the city streets last night and policemen on beats watched their jobs with renewed vigor and rounded up a score of gun carriers and petty thieves. In Brooklyn, four men with guns were taken while en route to a Coney Island hotel, scene of a previous big-time execution. Three upstate visitors to a house at 1206 Ocean Parkway, accompanied by a fourth man from Manhattan, all well-armed with 32 Colt revolvers and a big 32 Colt special in their auto, were taken in tow by Brooklyn police late yesterday and jailed overnight in the Parkville station. 
with a fifth man, tenant of the Ocean Parkway house, who was arrested later. They will be arraigned in Flatbush Court today on charges of having guns in their possession. The quartet, who said they were on their way to attend an Italian dinner tonight in a Coney Island hotel, the same in which Joe the Boss Masseri, which was actually Masseria, was shot a month or so ago, aroused the curiosity of motorcycle policeman Ray Dukes of Motorcycle Squad Number 2, honor medal man, and formerly pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Arrests for men. Duke saw the four men, big, swarthy individuals, leave the porch of the house, which is only about four blocks away from where Guido Ferrari was slain by clothing racketeers yesterday and climb into a car parked at the curb. Their appearance and manner aroused his suspicion, and he approached the car with drawn gun. Nicola Grupose said he was the owner of the car and that he lived at 511 Oak Hill Avenue, Endicott, New York, and showed a permit signed by an official of that town for the 32 Colt that he carried. Within the car, Dukes found the big Colt special, but none of the other three, Joseph Barbara of 2 Washington Avenue and Vincenzo Capola of 511 Oak Hill Avenue, both of Endicott, and Natali Evola of 12 Prince Street, Manhattan, would admit ownership of the weapon. He took the four to the Parkville station where they were questioned by Captain John J. Ryan, divisional head of detectives, and Detective Lieutenant Thomas Riley, pending the arrival of headquarters men. End quote. So, again, love these kinds of articles. And first you have the murder, uh, you know, the reference to Joe the Boss Masseri, which is, of course, as we know, actually Masseria. And the papers, papers often did, especially back then, just they they got his name wrong. It's pretty, pretty common to see them spell names wrong. And they said hotel is actually in a, in a restaurant, maybe attached to a hotel. I hope to do an entire episode on the Masseria assassination. Uh, but of course, definitely occurred on Coney Island. Regarding the arrest in that situation, it just may have been pure coincidence with respect to the destination being that of where the Masseria hit took place, as well as the, the proximity proximity of the the murder of another man guido ferrari maybe they were involved in some way maybe not i really don't know uh but just to unpack the report just a little bit there were some other notes in fbi field report documents suggesting that during this 1931 traffic stop where barbara was found to be in possession of that firearm like I just said, present with him at the time were several additional hoodlums, one of which was Natali Evola, uh, who would eventually rise to the position of boss of the Bonanno crime family in the 1960s after the Joe Bonanno situation. So again, this is Barbara riding, riding around with guns ready, uh, you know, with some pretty big connections as he's coming up the, the ranks. So riding around with some pretty heavy hitters who were themselves coming up the ranks. Now, a separate article out of the Scranton Republican from August 4th, 1931, would tend to indicate that this particular incident actually had more sinister undertones. Quote, former local youth alleged head of gang. Joseph Barbara, 26, arrested by New York police while cruising in bulletproof car. 
New York, August 3rd. Joseph Barbara, 26, formerly of Old Forge, PA, and three other reputed gunmen are being held here today after they failed in an alleged attempt to commit a gang killing in Harlem's Little Italy. Barbara, said by police to have been implicated in the murder of Charles Calamara on Railroad Street, Pittston, last January 5th, was described as being the ringleader of the gunmen and was refused bail. His three pals were released under heavy bonds after being arraigned in Flatbush Court. Barbara was armed and serene since Tuesday when a band of guerrillas sprayed a street in the Upper East Side section with machine gun bullets, killing a five-year-old boy and wounding four other children. Police cars manned by expert riflemen have maintained a 24-hour patrol on streets of Manhattan and Brooklyn. Riding in Bulletproof Car Shortly after 1 o'clock this morning, Officer Raymond Dukes, in charge of one of the cars, became suspicious of a presumably bulletproof sedan speeding along Ocean Parkway. Dukes and his squad trailed the auto and after a short chase succeeded in bringing it to a halt. Barbara and the other three men were found to be heavily armed, police said. One of the men, according to authorities, said that when they were stopped, they were on their way to slay Santa Voltaggio. 1206 Ocean Parkway. Officers who went to Voltaggio's home to tell him of the plot found a revolver on the premises. Voltaggio was arrested on a charge of violating the Sullivan Law. End quote. Now, first, I refuse to believe that, you know, one of the men in that car would have just spilled their guts, right? Telling police that they were about to go commit a murder. There's there's no way. Um, especially with the code, the code of Omerta, the, the code of don't talking in those days, that man would have been killed very, very quickly. Uh, so I think that there was probably some sort of a tip off with respect to the, to the police. Um, that being said, I don't believe in coincidences. And I think that this police officer probably caught all the men who were loaded to the teeth, right? They're driving around in a bulletproof car all with guns, uh, prior to them being able to carry out some sort of a hit, retaliation, so on and so forth. You often hear in the mob that mobsters, they don't carry guns unless they plan to use them. Now, again, I don't know how this was in the early 30s in terms of did mobsters carry guns all the time, but you know, especially as you get into the 60s, 70s and 80s, I've heard numerous stories where people say they don't they do not carry a gun unless they're going to use it. And all of these men had guns and I doubt they would carry guns around just to go to a restaurant. Right. They're, they're supposedly going to a nice Italian dinner all with guns. Now, I get it. The Masseria hit had had just taken place. Right. So you had to be on guard. But again, I just you know, I just don't know. New York at that time in 1931 certainly, you know, was a, you know, was a different place, but given the shooting of children in the, in the days before, whether it had to do with this group or not, and the constant surveillance by the the police in the area, why risk a drawing attention to yourself by riding around in a bulletproof car and two, having everybody carry guns when you know it's highly likely that that many guys loaded into a car are going to get picked up. Um, just kind of doesn't make any sense to me unless they were going on a hit. Now, ultimately, Barbara would produce a permit for his revolver and he would walk free for the second time that year. But 
Joseph Barbara in the early 1930s was a pretty busy man. And as you're about to see, the battle for control over local alcohol rackets was still very hot and heavy, even as prohibition was nearing its end. And prohibition, I believe, would end in 1933. So this is kind of still the early 1930s going into 1932. Joseph Barbara would prove to be a key member of that battle for control. I would come across an FBI report that would detail his involvement in 1932 in the murder of a man named Jacob Steinberg, who also went by the name Harry Steinberg, a Jack Lewis, Jacob Levine, and a few other aliases, as well as, in this case, the wounding of another man. And again, it's, it's a tale. It's a tale straight out of the movies. It truly is. So I'm going to, I'm going to, again, I'm going to take you, you know, through the FBI report. And, and again, we're going to take you through another article. And again, like I said, right out of a movie. Quote, on February 10th, 1932, Barbara was taken into custody in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and charged with suspicion of murder. He was not booked on the aforementioned charge. The arrest does not show on his criminal record. Harry Steinberg, alias Jack Lewis, a New York City parolee in company with Edward Weiss of Scranton, was walking down Muncie Avenue in Scranton when a car, operating in the same direction, overtook them. The occupants of the car started shooting, and as a result, Steinberg was killed and Weiss was wounded and later recovered. When taken to the hospital, Weiss identified Barbara and Nick Ross as the killers. They were both arrested and taken to the hospital. Confronted by them, Weiss recanted his previous story and stated that they were not the men Barbara and Ross were subsequently released. End quote. Now, let's go a little further. The February 10th, 1932 edition of the Scranton Times would detail the gangland slang in big, bold print right on the front page and would provide incredible detail, which made this hit, like I said, seem right as if it were out of the pages of a Hollywood script. Quote, Racketeers kill Steinberg. Beer runner's gunman fill victim full of lead as he walks along Poplar Street, second man in hospital, badly wounded. Two victims of assassins armed with shotgun, literally sprayed with lead. Dead man came to Scranton from New York five weeks ago. Killers in Scranton's first gang murder pumped bullets from Ford sedan. Gang guns flamed forth for the first time in this city early today, leaving one known racketeer dead and another one seriously wounded. Ambushed by four men who were in an automobile in the 300 block of Poplar Street this morning at 545, Jacob Steinberg, alias Levine, 25, described by police as a New York beer racketeer, was literally sprayed with lead from a pump-action shotgun. He was killed almost instantly. Steinberg's companion, Edward Weiss, 24, of 817 Monroe Avenue in custody, only recently for a $10,000 silk theft, was shot in the left thigh but managed to escape before the gunman could carry out their plan to kill him. The New York man, who came to this city but five weeks ago, had both of his forearms shattered by shotgun slugs. He also had a number of wounds in his left leg. The bullet which ended his life landed in his spine. We're traveling in Sedan. 
The killers, traveling in a small and apparently new sedan, lay in wait for their victims. The car cruised slowly along the curb after heading into Poplar Street from Wyoming Avenue, and its occupants, believed to have been hired gunmen, waited until their headlights picked up the approaching forms of Steinberg and Weiss, who were on the sidewalk when they were put on the spot. Steinberg and Weiss were walking east on Poplar Street, paying no attention to the car which was drawing towards them. Suddenly, a gun was thrust from a rear window of the machine. A hail of lead belched from the, the weapon in the direction of the men on the sidewalk. The trigger man in the car fired several shots and then leaped out with his weapon in his hands. Weiss fell with several slugs in his left thigh, one of which fractured the thigh bone. But he scrambled to his feet and ran, leaving a scarlet trail of blood in the snow behind him. Give it to him again. Steinberg, terror-stricken, started to flee the moment the shooting began, but he was pursued by the man with the shotgun and fell mortally wounded just a few feet from the car used by the killers. As Steinberg, with several bullet wounds in his body, lay in the middle of the road, one of the mobsters called out from the car, Give it to him again. At this command, the man with the weapon walked to Steinberg's prostrate form, aimed his gun with deliberate care at the wounded man, and calmly pulled the trigger. Steinberg died before he could be rushed to the state hospital. With their deadly mission complete, the killers sped through the block where they ambushed Steinberg and Weiss and headed to Monsey Avenue, turning north on that thoroughfare. They were lost to view long before police reached the scene. Weiss, bleeding profusely from his leg wound, managed to make his way to a court in the rear of Klotz Silk Mill. He then crawled between two houses to Capoose Avenue, where he collapsed on the sidewalk directly opposite the entrance to the city stables. Weiss taken to hospital. Weiss was picked up by several employees of the stables, many of whom were then reporting for work. He was placed in a commandeered roadster and hurried to the state hospital by Al Isel of 1433 Monsey Avenue and several others who were attracted to the scene by the noise of the shooting. The wounded man, who is expected to recover, regained consciousness on the way to the hospital and was able to give detectives a detailed account of the double shooting. Weiss's mother was summoned to his bedside soon after he reached the hospital. Several hours after the tragedy, the pump gun used by the killers was found on the Delaware near the Hudson Railroad tracks near the Sanderson Avenue crossing. It was loaded with two shells when picked up by Tony Canella, a track foreman of 119 Smith Street, Dunmore. The police also found three 12-gauge shotgun shells in front of the Atlantic Refining Company plant not far from where the weapon was discovered. Don't call the cops, was Weiss's request as he was being picked up from the sidewalk on Capoose Avenue. Weiss, according to the police, said he could not identify any of the four occupants of the death car. Result of Beer Runner's Feud the police, it is understood, are working on the theory that Steinberg, who is better known here as Levine, was the victim of Scranton's first spot murder by gangman because of a beer feud in which he and Weiss figured. Specially imported gunmen are believed to have been brought here to carry out the murder. One report, which gained wide circulation soon after the murder, was that Steinberg and Weiss had been in the Green Ridge section early today for the purpose of hijacking a beer drop. Still another angle being checked by the police was that the pair who were shot were suspected by local racketeers of having been connected with the recent hijacking of 80 halves of beer from a central city 
beer runner. Detective Edward Kelly, who lives in the 900 block of Capoose Avenue, only a block away from the scene of the killing, was the first police officer on the scene of the murder. He was followed quickly by Sergeant Walter Luther, who helped to assist Weiss to the hospital. Captain uh, Detectives John Phillips, Detective George Green, and Detectives Angelo Mano, and a number of other uniformed men and detectives. Ferguson sees shooting. Martin Ferguson, well-known Pinebrook businessman who lives at Capoose Avenue and Poplar Street, gave police an eyewitness account of the gunplay. I heard two shots, said Ferguson. There was a pause and then three more shots. Ferguson got out of bed and opened a window on the Poplar Avenue side of, the, of his second floor apartment. It was directly beneath this window that the shooting took place. Fearing that some of the shots might strike the house, Ferguson said he waved his wife back from the window. He could distinguish several forms in the street through the darkness, but did not recognize any of the men, he said. One man ran up Poplar Street a short way, Ferguson told the police. This was Steinberg, who tried to get away, only to be pursued and killed before he could travel 10 feet from the automobile of the gunman. A number of shotgun shells fired from the car struck a service pole on the curb outside of Ferguson's residence. But the killer's aim was deadly once he emerged from the machine and chased after Steinberg following the wounding of Weiss. At police headquarters, the statement was made that Steinberg is known to detectives as a beer racketeer. The authorities are fully convinced, according to their statements, that the matter was the outgrowth of a beer feud of some sort, probably carried out in revenge for a recent hijacking and through a tip-off that Steinberg and Weiss were engaged in that kind of mission when they headed for Green Ridge early this morning. Professional Gunman the killers laid their plans with great care and carried out their deadly task without a hitch. All signs point to the fact that they were professional gunmen, according to the police, who are also checking reports that Weiss might have been the innocent victim of some gang flare-up that made Steinberg a marked man before he ever left New York. Even though the killers were imported here from some other city, as police suspect, it is thought that they were accompanied on their expedition of death by at least one or more local men. Otherwise, the police said the man picked to handle the murder weapon would not have been able to identify Steinberg and Weiss, particularly at an hour of the morning when the streets were still shrouded by darkness. Mixed in beer racket. Since getting out of the scrape due to his suspected implication in the silk theft, Weiss has managed to steer clear of arrests. Detectives say that he has been mixed up in the beer racket lately and that he became friendly with Steinberg soon after the man came here. The two are thought to have formed a partnership in their outlawed activities. Weiss was closely questioned at the hospital this morning by Captain Phillips and other detectives. It is understood that he furnished little information that would aid in identifying the gunmen aside from the fact that they were riding in a new Ford car. The shotgun, which was later found on the Delaware and Hudson tracks, had been wrapped in a burlap bag before being tossed from the fleeing car. In addition to the shells discovered not far from where the gun was picked up, the police also found a number of empty and loaded shotgun shells on the scene of the murder. The neighborhood where the double shooting was staged was thrown into excitement as the news circulated that a murder had been committed. Several hundred people soon gathered at the spot where large pools of blood from the wounds of Steinberg and Weiss were left in the snow. End quote. And again, if you believe that FBI report, the shooter in this murder was Barbara himself along with a compatriot. 
In the days after the killing of Steinberg, articles would speculate that the killing came from New York, that the order came down from New York, as well as from the Pittston mob, tying it back to what they suspected, as I theorized, uh, control over the local beer rackets, right? It was still a big deal uh, at this at this time. Again, police would question several men, including Barbara, but with Weiss not talking, they pretty much had to release everybody and Joseph Barbara would get away again. Now, regarding the, the murder of Steinberg, the note that I found would go on to suggest that Barbara, as well as the aforementioned mobsters Santo Volpe, the boss, and Angelo Polisi, Barbara's friend, were involved. And the investigation uncovered this fact by tracing calls actually from Barbara's house to the house of Salvatore and Joseph Falcone of Utica. And of course, these brothers would be attendees, as I noted, at Appalachian. And of course, just before Appalachian occurred, it's worth noting that Polizzi visited his old friend in September of 1957, just before his own death and roughly uh, 30 years after this hit. Possibly to reminisce about the good old days. <laughs> Uh, again, this just goes to show the connections of Barbara, who at the time was still fairly young, uh, but was doing a lot of heavy work and could by this point definitely be characterized as an up and comer in the Italian underworld. And, uh, well, that wouldn't be the last of his heavy work. Uh, so Joseph Barbara in the early 1930s was a very busy man. And another FBI report would detail his involvement in what I, I actually believe to probably be the most infamous murder associated with Barbara, that of bootlegger Samuel Wichner. In, in again, I'm quoting, quoting a, a report. In 1933, Barbara was arrested by the Scranton, Pennsylvania police on suspicion. At 7 p.m. on February 16, 1933, the body of Samuel Wichner, a bootlegger and hijacker, was found in the rear trunk of a car on Meridian Avenue, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Death was caused by strangulation. There was a noose about the victim's neck, and the rope was fastened to the victim's knees in typical gangland fashion. Two men had been observed leaving the victim's car and entering a black Buick sedan occupied by two other men. The victim had informed his wife that he had been to Barbara's home on a previous night for a conference on a bootlegging venture with Barbara, Santos Volpe, and Angelo Polizzi, and had been instructed by Barbara to return at 9.30 p.m. the following night without informing anyone as to where he was going. During the investigation, calls were traced from Barbara's home to Utica 40613, listed to Salvatore Falcone and Brothers, 550 Bleecker Street, Utica, New York. On the failure of the witness, who had observed two men leaving the victim's car to identify either Polizzi or Barbara, they were discharged. End quote. And... As everybody knows, I spend really an inordinate amount of time digging into old newspaper articles in part to corroborate the information that I see in FBI reports. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but more for the fact that I really enjoy digging into what I feel like is, is really a window back in time. As a history buff, I really eat this stuff up. And what I like about looking at some of these articles is that on the spot, they tend to be fairly accurate with respect to reporting the facts of certain events just like this one. And so as I always do, as I just did, I'll take you through the sequence of events as reported by the local papers in February of 1933. First, we'll begin with reports the day after the body of Samuel Wichner was discovered. 
An article in the Scranton Republican on February 17, 1933, would run the story of Wichner's murder with front page headlines reading, quote, body of slain racketeer found, victim of feud bound and left in his own car. Samuel Wichner, Hanover Township, beaten and strangled, dead nearly 24 hours before police make gruesome discovery, machine believe parked on Meridian Avenue early yesterday morning. Bound and trussed with heavy sash cord, a section of which had been pulled around his neck so tightly as to cause death by strangulation, the body of a man said to be Samuel Wichner, 31, 100 Linwood Avenue, Hanover Township, was found last night stuffed in the rear compartment of a coupe which had been parked for nearly 24 hours in the 400 block of Meridian Avenue, West Scranton. Apparently the victim of a gangster feud resulting from alleged hijacking of liquor and beer shipments, Wichner, the Scranton police believe, was murdered outside of the city and jammed into the small section in the rear of his own car, which the Slayers then drove to West Scranton. Police questioned two men. Two men who were with Wichner on Wednesday night and who are believed by the authorities to know something of the murder were taken into custody in Wilkes Bar late last night and early today were being questioned by Wilkes Bar and Scranton Police, Lackawanna, and Luzerne County detectives and state troopers. The men describe themselves as Jack Lurie, 30, 122 2nd Avenue, Kingston, and Sidney Bloom, 25 of 155 East Market Street, Wilkes Bar. The murder of Wichner, the most gruesome of the three gangster killings which have been recorded in this county during the past year, was discovered at 7 o'clock last night when motorcycle patrolman Ralph Van Horn went to Meridian Avenue to examine the parked car after residents of the neighborhood had reported that the machine had stood there all day. Rope bound around neck. Lifting up the cover... Of the rear section of the Ford Coupe, the patrolman saw the man's body with rope bound around his neck, his chest, his abdomen, and his legs. The victim's arms were free. His head was badly cut and bruised, and blood poured from his left ear. Dr. J. Harold O'Day, deputy coroner, who later examined the body, said the, the man had probably been brutally beaten before his slayers bound him and strangled him, and that the blood may have come from his car as a result of a hemorrhage caused by a skull fracture. The body was so stiff as a result of exposure that Dr. O'Day and Coroner F.A. Bartecki uh, decided to wait until this morning to make a postmortem. There were no bullet holes or knife wounds on Wichner's body, end quote. So the article goes on to explain more about the discovery and how the police came to believe that Jack Lurie, also spelled Jack Lurie in some cases, and Sidney Bloom were suspects in the murder. According to reports, the police interviewed Wichner's wife, who told them that her husband had left the house around 8 p.m. in the company of Lurie. Lurie and Wichner then went to the restaurant called the Rialto Restaurant in Wilkes Bar, where they met up with Sidney Bloom. From there, the three men left at around 8.30 p.m., with Bloom returning an hour later. Uh, the suspects, Lurie and Bloom, would say that they didn't see Wichner again after they left the restaurant and that he'd gotten into his car and driven to Scranton. Now, as I mentioned, although it doesn't show up in local papers, eventually the police follow their leads and start to center their investigation on our subject, Joseph Barbara. According to FBI reports, Volpe and Angelo Polisi, again, 
you know, people pretty closely associated with Barbara had previously been involved in liquor dealings with Wishner, so they were all familiar to to some degree. And based on old FBI reports I found, it appears that on the evening of Wishner's murder, he met with Barbara, Sando Volpe, and Angelo Polisi to discuss bootlegging and most likely his hijacking of their shipments, right? He was probably in some deep shit. And at the conclusion of the meeting, Wishner leaves, but is told to come to Barbara's house the following night at 9.30, and he unwisely goes and walks right into the trap. This is probably around the February 15th or 16th time frame in 1933. And of course, we know that, that Wichner's body is found badly beaten and strangled, most likely by Barbara himself. He's probably the, the one who did the work. I think it's probably pretty clear here. And the police talked to Wichner's wife. And as a result, they started tracing the calls of Barbara. And within a week, they arrested Barbara as well as Angelo Polisi for suspicion. And in addition, they also questioned Santo Volpe as well. But unfortunately for law enforcement, again, this is common, after a brief interrogation with no proof and nobody willing to identify the pair, the best that they could do was revoke the men's pistol permits. So basically a slap on the wrist for murder. Subsequently, both Barbara and Polisi would be released the same day, February 23rd, 1933, and by February 25th, 10 days after the discovery of the body, the case would officially collapse and to this day remains unsolved, though Barbara was widely believed to have committed that murder, and that's probably his uh, most infamous homicide. So by this point, if you're keeping score, that this would represent at least three murders in a relatively short amount of time for Barbara or that Barbara either directly committed or that he was involved in. And in each case, he walked free from all of them. And for Joe Barbara, things would continue really to be on the upswing. Like murder in that life is a, is a good thing that propels you, that propels you forward. And he would go on to leave a pretty charmed mafia life nearly until the end. And speaking of being on the upswing, the rather extensive report that I referenced earlier uh, would continue insinuating, and this is a pretty funny story, that on the day of Barbara's wedding, June 24th, 1933, Barbara was also uh, masterminding an alleged robbery of a Binghamton shoe factory, which I guess getting married on the day that you're also masterminding a robbery is is pretty damn good alibi. Uh, but I just have to say, like, who who does that? Like, who orders a big robbery that, that gets lots of media publicity on the day that you're actually getting married? Crazy. And as the story goes, uh, I'm just going to read the read the report. On June 24th, 1933, at 10 a.m., the Gotham Shoe Factory in Binghamton, New York, was held up and robbed of a payroll in the sum of $4,775 by two men using a black sedan, New York license 2L4520, registered in the name of James Hart, 114, I'm sorry, 1114 Park Place, Brooklyn, New York, an operator license was issued to one James Richmond of 282 Pitkin Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, was found at the scene. This proved to be fictitious. The Buick sedan was found abandoned with the motor running at about 11 a.m. the same date, about one mile from the scene of the robbery. One hour prior to the robbery, a Chrysler sedan bearing Pennsylvania license number 69Z12 was seen in the vicinity where the Buick was later found. 
only the operator was in the Chrysler sedan. At 11 a.m., this automobile was again seen in the same vicinity and was alleged to have picked up two men. At 2 p.m., the same automobile was alleged to have picked up two other men in the vicinity, making a total of five. The Chrysler was checked out to be registered in the name of Joseph Barbara of 717 South Main Street, Old Forge, Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania. On the date of the holdup, Joseph Barbara was married to Josephine Vivona of 4 Garfield Avenue, Endicott, New York, with many known New York gangsters at the wedding. End quote. <laughs> now, because I like to double verify and because sometimes stories sound more like myth than fact, I did double check this. And it is, in fact, absolutely true. There was a daring daytime robbery of the Gotham Shoe Factory reported near the date I just mentioned. And what's better is that the factory was actually robbed again two months later. And I wonder if it was the handiwork of the you know, Barbara crew as well. So in the early 1930s, Joseph Barbara was essentially he was essentially a one man crime wave. And that particular robbery of four thousand seven hundred and seventy five dollars in 1933 would constitute roughly one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars in today's money. So a pretty nice score for Mr. and Mrs. Barbara to put towards their their honeymoon, if you ask me. And can can you imagine if he had that conversation, how that conversation with his wife went right? Honey, I've lined up a major score that's going to pay for our honeymoon and then some. But here's the catch has to be done today. But Joe, we're getting married today. <laughs> okay, honey, whatever you say. Uh, and the mayhem with Barbara, it wouldn't stop in the 1930s and into the 40s. And he'd conti continue really to solidify his reputation in the northeastern Pennsylvania and southern New York underworld both locally as well as with the national combination. The 1958 report would continue to lay out Barbara's potential involvement in yet another murder. Uh, quote, on July 9th, 1934, Barbara was questioned by the Broome County authorities in connection with the murder of Joe Morreale on July 4th, 1934. End quote. Okay, so I'm not going to go into as much detail on this one as I did with the others, and it, it's it's probably overkill. But again, this is at least the fourth murder that Barbara gets pulled in into and questioned on uh, in terms of just being questioned about murder raps for suspicion of murder in the early 1930s. So it's clear that he's pretty violent guy, uh, and he's dead center probably by this point on the local authorities' radar. In this case, the early part of July 1934. A local hood named Joe, Colorado Joe, good nickname, Morreale, who himself had a long police record, was taken for a ride and murdered. Now, there are many theories that circulated regarding the reasons for his death, including being the finger man in the arrest of another man, Stephen Kuchara, who he'd been staying with for a few weeks, a potential double cross related to hijacking of a liquor shipment or potentially just knowing too much about the, the murder of three men in a mine shaft in Old Forge, PA, in the early part of 1933. So he may have just known too much, right? P police really were unsure of the motive and it could have been any, any of a number of things. In any event, though, Morreale was taken to his death in his own car and upon reaching the murder site was pushed out and shot 16 times in the head, neck, shoulders, and left arm, with the autopsy revealing he'd been shot by a 32 caliber revolver and a 32 caliber automatic pistol. 
A witness uh, living near the scene told police she saw two cars come out of the golf road where he was found. Uh, the cars come out at about 3 a.m. and the body was found around 7 a.m. with the coroner stating that Colorado Joe had been dead for about four to six hours when they found him. Now, in the end, 12 people, including Barbara, were questioned, but within three weeks, all the local gangsters would pretty much be ruled out. And again, just another case that goes unsolved. FBI reports later in his life would refer to Barbara as a kingpin in gambling activities in Endicott and vicinity, though he would remain in the background and simply furnish the money. Reports of Barbara's control over local bookmaking, gambling, and lottery operations would continue well into the 1950s, though authorities were actually never able to secure any evidence proving that he was behind it. But it's clear that in addition to being a hitter, he was increasing his, his repertoire of criminality in the local area and beginning to kind of run things. Reports would also suggest that Barbara had been suspected for years of being the man behind the operation of all illegal stills in the area, though efforts, again, to arrest him would prove pretty futile. Uh, though authorities couldn't prove it, they believe Barbara's connections to bootlegging and for being the most common acquaintance to those who were most typically arrested for bootlegging activities were key indicators, as well as their belief that he was one of the only men in the area at the time with enough money to set up the network of the illicit stills and kind of back it monetarily. Uh, even after bootlegging ended, illegal stills were still pretty big sources of revenue for various mobs, primarily because the illegal alcohol was both cheaper to make and you didn't have to pay taxes, right? So that made it continue to be an appealing option for businesses looking to cut costs or, in this case, probably not have their legs broken. And if you watch the episode on Angelo Bruno, you'll know that he stayed in the illegal alcohol business well after Prohibition ended as well. So it was not uncommon. Uh, but like many mafiosi by this point in time, although he was doing a lot of illegal stuff, he would attempt to go legit uh, and it would become kind of what he was known for. Uh, and he would attempt to go legit from a public appearances standpoint. And we're going to dig into that now. Thank you for listening to the Gangland History Podcast. If you'd like to donate to the show, check out our Patreon channel. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. If you're an audio-only listener, subscribe via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.